We have been blessed this morning, haven't we? Children's choir, cello, our wonderful music team always is a blessing. And truly, if you're a member here, you understand how much the Lord has blessed us just in the past few years. Well, before I open God's word with you, by the way, we'll be in Genesis, so you can make your way there. But I have a quick announcement that didn't make it into the bulletin. We have a new seminary student soon. I'm glad to announce that the elders have approved and he has been accepted. Bobby Trejo has been accepted to the Master's Seminary. As a student starting this fall, he'll be staying with us through the Mentor Model Program and training here with us. So many of you know Bobby. He was just installed as a deacon last week and he has got a nice Christmas gift there with that acceptance letter from John MacArthur. Well, let's open God's Word this morning. Genesis 3. Genesis 3. I want to read to you verses 1 through 16. I'll I'll be really bringing out verse 15 and opening up the first Christmas story right here, the oldest Christmas story. I've entitled the sermon, The Promised Snake-Crushing Savior. The Promised Snake-Crushing Savior. I want to read this passage to you. I know you've recently heard a bit about it in a a sermon delivered by a missionary a few weeks ago. But again, our focus is verse 15. Let me read this passage, starting in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the beasts of the field which Yahweh God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God said, you shall not eat from it and you shall not touch it, lest you die. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Then the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. So she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Then they heard the sound of Yahweh God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh God in the midst of the trees of the garden. Yahweh God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Yahweh God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And Yahweh God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than any of the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat and the days of your, all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. And he goes on to deliver the curse to the woman, to You, he says, I will greatly multiply your pain and conception. In pain you will bear children. Your desire will be for you, for your husband, and he will rule over you. And to Adam, he goes on to talk about the curse that Adam will receive. This is the oldest Christmas story. As I said in my 
prayer this morning. Everyone's talking about Christmas this time of year, at least the Western world. We were in a, a secular store that normally plays ungodly music recently, and I heard Christmas hymns that we just sang today. And they're literally proclaiming the gospel through these hymns in a secular store. And people are coming in and, and hearing these. Now, we're all used to that as part of our culture. We know that Christmas has kind of become a, a tradition in our culture for the last 100 or 200 years. However, it is a, a wonderful opportunity for Christians. I mean, we're gathering every Lord's Day, no matter what. You can call it Christmas Eve or not. But this time of year, that's the conversation. That's what people are, if not talking about, at least hearing. And at least at some level, there's Christ's name being heard. There's Christ's name going out. And so I wanted this morning to look at the first of these gospel stories in the Bible. The very first one, what many evangelists, what many scholars, what many pastors call the proto-evangelium, which is Latin for the first gospel. The first gospel is right here in Genesis 3.15. In fact, everything after that really fits right back in to Genesis 3.15. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, said, this is the first gospel sermon that was ever delivered upon the surface. It contains all the gospel. He said, there lie within it, as an oak lies within an acorn, all the great truths which make up the gospel of Christ. So I want to show you this this morning. I want to show you three facts about our Savior in this passage or connected to this passage. And to remind you of the context here, God has created the earth. He's created it in six days. He has made it good. In fact, by the time we get done with chapter 1 of Genesis, it says God saw all that he had made. And behold, it was very good. The creation was very good. And when you think about Christ's return and all the wonderful new creation that's coming, it is once again going to be very good. That means without sin, without corruption, without decay, without death. It was very good. Chapter 2 now goes back of Genesis and talks about Adam and Eve and how God created the woman for man. And it says that man was created in the image of God. He was perfect. He was innocent. He had all the needs met by his creator. He walked daily, man did, with God in the garden. The relationship was close. It was intimate with God. And then we begin in chapter 3 to see a change. And this change will last all the way through the Bible, all the way through history, until we get to the very end of the Bible, the last two chapters, and we'll see there a change to an even better state than what was in the garden. Let's look now at Genesis 3, starting in verse 1. I want to show you, first of all, the first fact about the Savior is the need for a Savior. This snake-crushing Savior is coming because we have a need. And it's most clearly expressed in Genesis 3, 1 through 10 that I just read to you. Everything was perfect, but now here comes the serpent. And he says, because he was more crafty than any beast of the field, the context here is that God made all these beasts. He made them to serve mankind. He made them to glorify himself. And we know the serpent here is the devil. It's Satan. Satan has taken control of this serpent to speak now. And he chose this serpent for a reason. Satan chose the serpent because the serpent was crafty already. God naturally built this animal with a craftiness, not necessarily sinful, but Satan now twists that and uses it. And here's what he says to the woman. Indeed. You like how he just starts off with that? 
a question is coming, right? Indeed, has God said? And this is where all sin starts right here. Has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Satan is very clever. If he had stated a direct question or an attack against God, Eve would have said, no way, I'm not tolerating that. But he just throws out a subtle question. He doesn't have to get you to move 180 degrees the opposite direction. He just needs to get a person that has a relationship with God to move one step to the side. Just a small little amount. Has God really said that? Any tree? He saw something in Eve that he could exploit. He chooses not to go to Adam. He chooses to go to Eve. We don't know what Adam had told Eve. She probably understood something about the command based on what she's about to say to Satan. But he went after Eve to tempt her first. And a little subtle deception. A subtle deception. Because God had said you could eat freely from any tree except one. And here comes Satan. Did God really say that? Did he say you could not eat from any tree in the garden? He's making God sound very strict, very legalistic. Who is this God who would restrict you to not eat from any tree? He's still using this trick today. You know, Satan still uses this with you today. Has the Bible really said this? Is the Bible really without error? Is it sufficient for everything we need to grow in our sanctification Does God's word really condemn homosexuality? Did God really create the world in six days? You know, as followers of Christ, as Christians, we're called to submit, therefore, to God, James says. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. How do you resist the devil? By submitting to God. How do you do that? By submitting to God's word. That's what Eve does not do. Here's what she says to the serpent. From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden... God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it. Now, it sounds like she's repeating God's words. But if you look very closely, she's changed a few things. If you look very closely to what God says, and we didn't read it, but in chapter 2, 16 and 17, her words do not match God's words. They're off just a bit. It's very subtle. She takes the word freely out. It's not freely. God says, freely you can eat from this. That word's missing from her report To Satan, minimizing in some way God's generosity, his goodness. Also, she did not name the exact tree, which God did. He said, this is the exact tree. She doesn't name it. She appears to have added a word here, a phrase here. Do not touch it. She appears to go further than the word of God. Now, some say maybe Adam messed this up when he told her. Some say it's implied that she's not to touch it. But God just said, do not eat from it. And she says, we can't eat from it and we can't even touch it. Almost as if Satan is already doing his work on her with this temptation. And certainly she's added the word lest here. Lest. Look at the end here of verse 3. If your translation has it like this. You shall not eat from it. You shall not touch it. Lest you die. That's not what God said. God said, if you eat from it, you will surely die. There's no question. But changing it just a bit and saying blessed. It's kind of like saying, if we eat it, perhaps we'll die. If we eat it, maybe we will die. Subtle little changes. And that's all Satan wanted. He just wanted a small movement away from the exact words of God. Satan is clever. Satan is clever. He cunningly sneaks little things like this to make us doubt, 
to make us doubt God, to make us doubt God's word. He lies to us. And we think, well, there's nothing wrong with adding a couple of phrases here. I mean, come on, pastor. All she did was, you know, get a little bit off with her Bible memorization here. That was all the Bible they had. You know, they had one command that God had given them. That was it. And you would think if you're going to die and and implied later is this eternal death, that they would have that one down word for word. But Satan had come in and tempted her. He's got a little chink in her armor. Now he lets loose his full attack. There's no more holding back. He sees this hole in the wall of her defenses and he says, you will surely not die. You will surely not die. He wasn't going to start with that. He was going to wait to see what she said. And now he sees the opportunity. He goes as hard and fast as he can here. You surely will not die. The opposite of what God said, which is, you surely will die. And Satan is saying, surely you will absolutely never, ever die. I mean, come on. He's a liar. Jesus said Satan is a liar from the beginning. Jesus told that to the Pharisees who were attacking him. He said Satan was a murderer from the beginning. So lying is tied to murdering. And Satan does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. For he is a liar and the father of lies. So the lie here is that there's no punishment for disobeying God. How popular is that lie today? The need for our Savior is right here in this passage. And that we don't think there's any punishment with disobeying God. That's what Satan said. That's what Eve ends up believing. That's what Adam ends up believing. For a short time at least. And that's the world today. The Bible's really not true. They say, God's really not going to punish sinners forever for one little sin. God wouldn't do that. Well, the Bible starts off telling us he actually will punish the sinner. Verse 5, for God knows. This is Satan still. God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open. And you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Now he goes after an attack on the goodness of God. God had given them everything they needed. And now Satan is implying God has withheld something from you. Something that's good. Something that you need. You need to know good and evil. I mean, obviously that's a good thing, right? I can can be discerning Eva's reasoning in her head. You know, that sounds like a good thing. God's just jealous, Satan is saying. God is jealous that you might know something like him. That you'll be like him. Which is actually what Satan wanted to be like. He wanted to be like God. He wanted to be God. And yet, here's the temptation he uses with Eve. God's just jealous. He's holding you back from your true destiny. God's holding you back. You know, I know as pastors, we can attest to how many times we've heard people say, you know, God just wants me to be happy. He would never hold me back from divorcing my spouse and marrying a new spouse. I mean, God just wants me to be happy. He would not keep me from doing something I want to do. That's what's going on here in the garden. Eve had been fully deceived. Her temptation now gives birth to the outward act of sin. Once she had decided in her mind that it was something she was going to do, now she took action. She took from its fruit and she ate. She gave some to her husband with her. And the eyes of both of them were open. They knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together. They made themselves loin coverings. It's no big deal, right? She just took a bite of fruit. I mean, what's the problem here? And now they know. Now they know 
evil. They know what sin is. Before that, they were walking with God. God provided everything they needed. Now they thought they're going to take matters into their own hand. They're going to eat this fruit and they're going to know. And just like every child who grows up in some sense innocent in the the fact that they don't know all the sin that's out there, they come to adulthood and they realize that there is indeed sin in the world. This is the first sin that comes into the world. The beginning of wisdom here, the Bible says, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. But here, Eve thinks the beginning of wisdom is following her own desires. She looked at it. She thought it was good for food. I mean, why not? This looks good. This looks good. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life won over. This is the very first sin. It had an immediate consequence. Even before God showed up to punish them, they understood what had happened. They were separated. They were alienated from God. Before they walked with God in the garden, now they're hiding from him. Now they're sowing fig leaves together as if that could hide them from God. We think we can hide our sin from God. Here they are sowing fig leaves together and hiding behind some trees and bushes. You see, the first consequence of sin is alienation, separation. They're also ashamed. They're ashamed of their nakedness. They were naked before. What's the problem? Well, now they understood all the sin that can come from seeing nakedness of other people. Before that, it was innocent. They were husband and wife. They were naked. No problem. Now they are ashamed. Sin brings shame. Why do we need a Savior? Sin brings separation from God. Sin brings shame. Also, there's fear. Verses 8 and eight through 10, they're afraid of God. They know that His holiness demands justice for what they have done. They are now afraid. They didn't quite believe God when Satan was tempting Eve, but now, now that they've sinned, they are afraid. They know punishment is coming. So God looks for them. They hide themselves and they say, we have hid because we are afraid. That's the need for a savior right there. We're sinners. We're just like Adam and Eve. We're sinners and we need a savior. There's no way to be restored to God. There's no way to fix this relationship unless God does something. God gives us everything we need, and we turn from him. We sin. And then since that point, we're born with a sin nature. Since that point, even though all the babies that have come out of my wife are so cute and so wonderful and so sweet, they're little sinners. And they just start sinning as soon as they can, you know? And they just start tearing up stuff around the house and yelling and fighting and hitting and just my kids, right? And ever since then, they're born with this sin nature. They don't have to learn it. They don't have to go eat the fruit. They just already have it in them because they're children of Adam and Eve. And then they start acting on that sin nature and they commit sins against God. And we commit more and more sin against God as we live and we continue on until the Lord saves us. So let's look now at number two, the promise of a Savior. The promise of a Savior. Because of what sin has brought into the world, what sin has done to our hearts, what sin has done to the human race, God is going to condescend. God is going to come down and give hope. He's going to shine this wonderful light of grace right here in the garden. They haven't even been kicked out of the garden yet. They're still in the garden. Punishment has not come to Adam and Eve yet. It's about to. But before that, God gives hope. He gives good news. This wonderful promise of the gospel is found, surprisingly, 
when God curses the serpent. He's not even talking to Adam and Eve yet in verse 14 and 15. He's talking to the serpent. The judgment for sin will come in the order that the sin occurred. Satan first sin, Satan gets the first judgment. Then the woman, then the man. Verse 14, God begins with this judgment on the serpent. Yahweh God, using Yahweh, the covenant name, the name that Israel would know later when they read this, as Moses wrote this for the nation of Israel to understand where they came from, understand where all humanity had come from at this point in Genesis. They know Yahweh. That's the covenant God. That's the I am God. That's the eternally existing God. That's the God who existed before anything was and will exist into eternity forever. Yahweh, God, says now to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you more than any of the cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, dust you will eat all the days of your life. The serpent was cunning. It was, it was crafty. The serpent, a real animal here, in the garden, is now cursed. Serpents must have had feet and arms, must have had an ability to stand up erect, because the punishment, just like the punishment to Eve and the punishment to Adam is something different than they experienced in the garden, this serpent stood up and could speak. I mean, Adam and Eve aren't even surprised that the snake is talking. Have you ever stopped to think about that? They're not even surprised that an animal is talking to them. And now, suddenly, this thing is going to have to slither and creep. You recall later when God is giving the food laws to Israel, he says, don't eat the creeping things. That's a curse here that this serpent now has to slither, creep, just like we know him to do today. And even though the serpent was possessed by Satan, God punishes it. Animals are created for God's glory. They're created to serve mankind, and yet they have harmed mankind. Through Satan using the serpent, the serpent has also been a part of this, has harmed mankind, and there will be a punishment in the world, in the animal kingdom as well here with the serpent. And it also reminds Satan. It reminds Satan that just like this serpent has been humbled and has to now slither through the dust, Satan is going to be humbled. Satan is going to be cast down. Satan is going to eat the dust, as we might say today. Satan tried to exalt himself above God. He tried to get higher than God. He tried to be more important than God. And he is now going to be the lowest. And the symbol will start right here with the serpent, God says, in the garden. Snakes not only are slithering, but they are poisonous. And they can kill and they can bite. I recall once camping out when I was a teenager, and I, thankfully I never ran into a rattlesnake. When I was very, very little, my grandma told me that there was a rattlesnake where we were playing outside, and my uncle had to chop its head off with a garden hoe. But then when I was camping as a teenager, I jumped over some rocks, and I just heard that rattlesnake sound right below my feet. And I, just, I wasn't a believer at that time. I was just a, a kid, but I thought, wow, that thing had bit me. Or an hour from, probably two hours from any hospital. I'm not sure I would have made it. Snakes are going to slither. They're going to cause a problem with humanity. But this verse, like some scholars say this verse, is just about a lesson of mankind and animals. That's not what it's saying here. It's not a lesson of how snakes became the way they are. This is a lesson for Satan. This is a lesson 
for him to know and for us to read and understand what is going to happen. And it comes to the point here in verse 15. He's still talking to Satan, not Eve yet. And he says in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Enmity is hatred, personal hostility, to be treated as an enemy. Satan is cozying up to Eve and acting like they're good friends and tempting her. And God says, now there's going to be a clear separation. There's not going to be the serpent comes and talks to you and you wonder, you don't even wonder what's going on. Now, if a certain serpent does anything to us, we're going to think that's a problem. In fact, most of us hate snakes because of the danger that they present. And on top of that, as Christians, we should hate Satan. There's enmity between Satan and Eve here, the mother of all the human race. It's God who's setting this up. Notice he says, I will do it. Have you ever wondered why there's this hostility between Christians and the world? Well, yeah, it's because they hate God, but God has set it up that way. He has set it up ultimately in his providence for his own glory. And we see that all the way throughout the Bible. Why is there evil? Why is there suffering? Because God is bringing a Savior. And the Savior is going to shine all the more glorious because of all the darkness that's out there. And he says, there's going to be this hostility, this hatred between you and the serpent. And between your seed and her seed. There's going to be this fierce, ongoing conflict between her seed and Satan's seed. Seed is, in this case, the offspring. The offspring of Satan, the offspring of the woman. And there's going to be this constant hatred, this warfare. Now, Satan doesn't have physical children. He's not talking here about the demons. Who created the demons? God did. God created angels. Some fell with Satan. Those are the demons. He's not saying those are Satan's seed. Satan's offspring are spiritual descendants. Those who follow in Satan's path. Those who are parents, or those who are children of their parent, who are the woman's seed. The woman's seed are those who believe and trust in God. Just like Eve will do once she's restored. After this, God kills an animal and clothes them. It's a symbol of God taking care of them. So there's going to be this animosity, this hatred between those who trust in the Lord for salvation and follow him and those who hate God and fight against him. There's going to be constant warfare, constant battle. Jesus tells the Pharisees, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He's not saying that they they were created in some kind of satanic ritual. He's saying they act out the desires of Satan with their sin and their hatred of Christ and ultimately their hatred of God. Therefore, their father is the devil. And we see this in the next chapter, starting with Cain. What happens? Cain kills his brother. And Cain goes off and you follow his line for a little ways and you see how much sin there is. The first case of polygamy happens in Cain's line. But you look at Seth's line and there's a different lineage there. People started to worship Yahweh again, it says, with the line of Seth. There's spiritual warfare. Now, who are these children of Cain? Well, really, the children of Satan are all of us before we come to Christ. All of us, Paul says, in Ephesians 2, before we come to Christ. Here's what he says, talking about our pre-conversion days, as he's writing to Christians, he says in Ephesians 4, that he says, in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air. 
Who is that? That is Satan. The ruler of the power of the air is Satan. It's clear in other letters of Paul. And he says, according to the ruler of the power of air, that's how you live. That's how you walked before you came to Christ. The spirit, which is now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all, Paul includes himself. He says, we all also formerly conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh. Does this sound familiar? The lusts of our flesh, doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind. That's exactly what Eve did. She looked at the fruit. She thought it was good in her mind to eat. So she took from it and she ate it. Paul says we were doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest, just like everybody else, he says. Everybody starts out as children of wrath. Everybody starts out here as a child of darkness. That's what Paul talks about later in Colossians when he says, you've been saved out of the kingdom of darkness and put into the kingdom of light. And now that we're in the kingdom of light, there's this continued animosity with between the people who follow Satan and those who follow God. I'm not talking just about Satanists here. Paul's not saying if you worship Satan and draw pentagrams, therefore you're a child of wrath. No, he's saying everybody's a child of wrath because we're all born in sin and we all sin. Then Christ comes and saves us. He forgives us of our sin when we believe in him. We receive his righteousness. Now he gets even more specific. God does here in Genesis 3.15. So there's Satan versus the woman here who's going to be redeemed as soon as God kills that animal and shows them that the sacrifice is needed to cover their sin. Then her seed and his seed. So going down the line here. And then he suddenly goes from this group idea of seed, God does, and he says, he shall bruise you on the head. He, singular masculine pronoun. He, referring to the seed of the woman. It's clear here, this is a reference to the Messiah, to the Savior, to the one that will crush Satan's head. Now, your translation probably says bruise, so does mine. But the Hebrew can also mean crush. And to crush the head is a fatal blow. There's a singular seed who's coming out of this seed of the offspring of woman. And he will deliver a fatal blow to the serpent's head. He will crush him because that's the way you kill a snake. You cut off its head. You, you smash its head. You grab it by the tail, it's going to turn around and bite you. You cut off its tail, that's not going to do much good. It can still bite you. It can still do damage. But this singular seed is going to bruise, going to crush the head. This is God's grace. He hasn't even kicked him out of the garden yet and banned him from his presence. And he's already telling them what is going to happen. Yes, he's speaking to Satan, but they can hear what is being said. It's recorded here in scripture for us as well. God has not even told Adam and Eve what his punishment will be. And yet he's shown mercy. He's shown grace. He's given them hope because there's going to be a lot of darkness. Can you imagine the next day when they're kicked out of the garden? And there's thorns and thistles and they've got to work for their food. Can you imagine how much they wept and how long they wept for? Probably the rest of their life because they saw the garden. They saw how it was perfect. They had a relationship that was very close to God. And yet, here's a shining light. There's someone coming. There's a he that's coming who will fix this problem that Satan brought into the world. He's going to crush that serpent. He's going to kill that serpent. And it is the Messiah who's doing it. Sometimes you see, especially these days, a painting or an image of Eve. And she's got long hair sort of covering her body. 
this has been shared a lot on social media in the last few years. And the snake is wrapped around her leg. And she's got this fruit that she just ate. And then her hand is out here. And on the other side of her is Mary holding her hand. And Mary's pregnant. So Eve's hand is on her belly. And then Mary is stepping on the snake's head. And the snake's head is turned over like he's dead. Now that comes from a mistrans in the, in the Roman Catholic Bible, the Latin Vulgate, where they read it as she will crush the serpent's head. But the Hebrew actually says he. And it goes way back in history where they get the idea of she. But when you, when you see this image, don't share it around. It's not a great Christmas message. It's wrong. It's not Mary who's doing the crushing here. It is Christ. Christ is crushing the head. Yes, Mary will give birth to the Christ. But Mary's not doing the crushing. She's not doing the salvation. She's not doing anything in the realm of saving. This is the Messiah. It is not the woman. It is the seed of woman, God says, that will crush the serpent's head. And some see even more here with the seed of woman because women don't have seed. It's the men who have seed. And some say this is a hint at the virgin birth because there's only two places in the Bible that you see this seed of woman. It's right here. And in a moment, I'll show you it's at the end of the Bible, both referring to Eve or in the case of Revelation to Israel. So this is the Messiah. And look, it's not over yet. One more line here. You shall bruise him on the heel. Talking to Satan. And the Messiah will be bitten by the serpent. Serpents are deadly. They are deadly. They will bite you. And even though the Messiah is going to crush, he's going to kill, he's going to wipe out this serpent, Satan. Satan's still going to do some damage here. He's going to bite this Messiah on the heel, this seed of woman. In other words, the, the seed of woman is going to suffer. There's going to be some suffering. We know from later scripture that the Savior is going to die, but then be raised again on the third day. Now, the rising again is not here, but this bruising on the heel. In other words, from this point forward, the people who are reading this, the people of Israel and later the church are going to say there's a promised Messiah coming. He's going to kill Satan. He's going to die, but then we know the rest of the story. He's raised again. Isaiah 53, 5 talks about this suffering servant, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our peace fell upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. So even though Satan is going to bite him on the heel, the Messiah, and he's going to die as a result of that poisonous bite, God's going to use that as a sacrifice to cover our sin. Isn't it wonderful that God not only saw all this, but decreed that it will come to pass? This is the first promise, the ultimate victory that the Messiah will have over Satan. We sang Joy to the World a few weeks ago. You remember the line, No more let sins and sorrows grow. Nor thorns infest the ground. Metaphor back to the garden. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. The curse goes out to all mankind. Here's the one that's coming. The Savior who's going to fix this problem that we have. Our biggest problem. Our biggest need. Our sin. Our sin that we have. This is why A.W. Pink, when he was writing his gleanings on Genesis here, he says, by woman had come sin. By woman should come the Savior. By woman had come the curse. By woman should him who would bear and remove the curse. 
By woman, paradise was lost. Yet by woman should be born the one who should regain it. Oh, what grace the Lord of glory was to be the woman's seed. Okay, let's look now at number three. So we've looked at the need. We've looked at the promise of the Savior. But how does this play out in Scripture? How does this tie into the birth of Christ and the eventual defeat of Satan? Let's look thirdly at the coming of the Savior. They probably ask, as most people up until probably Moses wrote all the first five books of the Bible. So they're hearing this story about what happened in the garden. And people are asking, as Mary pointed back to even in her song, people are asking, who is this Messiah? Who is this he, this singular seed that's going to come from the offspring of a woman and going to be the Savior? Who is he? And you can imagine every generation is waiting. Is this the one? Is this the one? The song that we heard play on cello that we sang last week, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and Ransom, Captive Israel. There's, there's one coming. And you see that in the New Testament when it starts with Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and even John. There's this expectation of the long-awaited Messiah. Who is the seed of woman? When will he come? Even angels did not know. They were longing to look into this. They saw what happened in the garden. They saw that one of their own, Satan, had deceived man and had been punished along with a third of the angels. And they're waiting, the Bible says, to see how this plays out. Martin Luther said the promise and the threat are both clear and obscure here. If it left the serpent in the dark about which woman would give birth to the seed of the woman, so that he had to think of every woman as possibly becoming the mother of the blessed seed. On the other hand, it gave our first parents great faith that from that very hour they expected the Savior. They don't know who he's going to be or when he's coming. Satan doesn't know who he's going to be and when he's coming. Would it be Cain? Well, that's the first child born, Genesis 4.1. Now the man knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man with the help of Yahweh. She's just been told that there's a Savior coming who's going to defeat this serpent, and he's going to fix this problem, this problem that we have because of sin. He is the solution. He is the salvation. And she said, maybe it's Cain. Not Cain, because he kills his brother and is cast out even further. Well, maybe it's Abel. No, Abel dies. He doesn't live a very long life. Well, maybe it's Seth. Look at 425 of Genesis. I think she really thinks it's Seth. Then Adam knew his wife again. She gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has set for me another seed. And we're going to see this word seed used all throughout the Bible. We don't have time to go through every single verse on seed in the Bible. I love how the LSB, though, makes sure we understand the word is not descendants or offspring, but the Hebrew word here is seed. God has set for me another seed in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. Okay, it's not Cain. It's not Abel. Maybe she thinks... I know who's going to be the, the seed of woman. It's Seth. It's not Seth. Well, maybe it's Abraham. No, but through Abraham's seed, his Jewish offspring, God said, in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. In you, Abraham, all the families of the earth. So whoever it is, is coming through the line of Abraham. Well, let's go back to Genesis 6. Maybe it is Noah. We know it's not Noah because Abraham comes after Noah. But remember in Genesis 6, Satan hatched this plan. Satan hatched a plan to corrupt mankind. He hatched a plan 
through demonically controlled men who influenced the offspring through women. And the Nephilim were the result. And he is trying to corrupt mankind. And God wipes out the whole earth. Maybe it's Noah, everybody's thinking. No, it's not Noah. Noah gets drunk as soon as he gets off the boat. But God does say, I'll establish my covenant with you and with your seed after you. Who is Noah's seed? Well, Abraham is part of Noah's seed. Well, maybe it's Jacob. Maybe it's Jacob. It's, it's Abraham's grandson, whom the nation of Israel is named after. Jacob and none of his sons will be the snake-crushing king. But Jacob was given this promise on his deathbed. Or he gives this promise through God. He prophesies about his sons. He's going, you know, in Genesis 49, he's going through the different sons. And he says of Judah, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So it's not Abraham, it's not Jacob, it's not Judah, but through Judah is coming one that will be the king of all the earth. All the peoples, all the Gentiles, all the nations will obey him. Well, surely it's King David. You can imagine in David's day, you've got Genesis, you've got all the first five books of Moses. You're probably hearing those taught in the temple. There's copies of those being read. Maybe it's David. Everything is going great. The kingdom has expanded under David further than it ever will. Maybe it's David. He's a man after God's own heart, except he's a man of bloodshed and adultery. It's not David, even though the one to come will be in the line of David. Even though David is a type of the one to come, it's not David. But here's what God says immediately after David sins and he repents. And God now comes to him and says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up one of your seed after you. This is the Davidic covenant. It's not just offspring here. The word in Hebrew is seed. I will raise up one of your seed after you who will come forth from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. Well, this sounds like Solomon. Maybe it's Solomon. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Not Solomon. This kingdom will last forever. There's one coming from your seed. And everybody hearing that and reading that from 2 Samuel here would have thought back to the promised seed. The seed of woman that's coming. There's what's called a seed theology carried all throughout the Bible. The Savior's not come. Israel goes into captivity for their sin. They turned away from God. Their sin gets so bad they're worshiping false idols. They're taken into Babylon. The northern ten tribes are wiped out by Assyria. The Savior has not come. And you have a few hundred years of silence. And then comes the New Testament. And if you look at Luke chapter 3, Luke 3, we often hear Luke 2, the Christmas story there of the shepherds and the birth of Christ. But in Luke 3, there's a genealogy. What do you do with the genealogy? What do you do with all these names? Well, they're in the Bible for a reason. It's to teach you something. And here we see in the genealogy, which Luke traces backwards. And he goes all the way back to the beginning. And Luke 3.38. He's been tracing the genealogy. I think of Mary here, not, not of Joseph, even though it, he, say, he starts off by saying, supposed the father uh, Joseph. But that's supposed. He puts that in there. And then he traces this line, which is different than Matthew's genealogy. I think this is Mary's genealogy. But look at verse 38. The son of Enosh, the son of Seth, 
the son of Adam, the son of God. The genealogy ties all the way back to Adam. And you could say Adam and Eve. Luke is telling us this is the long-expected Messiah. The snake crusher has come from Adam and Eve all the way down through David, all the way down to Christ. Now look at verse 4. Now Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was being led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days. Being t- he comes from Adam. He comes from Eve. They were tested. They failed. They did not pass the temptation. They did not pass the test. Here's Christ, the second Adam. He is related all the way back. He's now put into the wilderness. He passes the test. Not only does he pass the test, he remembers the word of God and cites it against Satan exactly. Even though Eve changed it just a bit, not Jesus. He cites the word of God exactly every time Satan tries to tempt him. He does what Adam and Eve could not do. Again, Luke pointing to the seed of woman here, the Messiah, the second Adam, tempted in the flesh, resisted temptation with the word of God. Now we go forward to the apostles, Romans 16, 20. At the very end of Romans, Paul's talking about how they are to live, how they are to resist Satan and the evil temptations that come towards them. And he says in Romans 16, 20, here's how you do battle with Satan. He doesn't give them a manual and exorcism. He doesn't go tell them to cast out demons or to rebuke Satan or to chain Satan. Here's what he says. He says, be wise in what is good and innocent. And what is evil. Know what is good and do it. And, and don't even mess with things that are evil. And the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Sound familiar? Crushing Satan should make you think back to Genesis 3.15. And not only that, he's going to crush Satan under our feet. In other words, the way we do battle with Satan is through Christ in us. Because Christ is the one who crushes Satan's head. How do we do that? We live out the Christian life through Christ in us. Now we go forward to Hebrews 2.14. And this is even more clear. Where does this crushing of the head really come to a point? Well, it's at the cross. It's at the cross. Hebrews 2.14, speaking of Christ. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. So the Son of God took on flesh. He's fully God. He's fully man. He's fully man means he can die. He can be our sacrifice. He can have his blood shed like a sacrifice would do in the Old Testament. Why? He partook of the same. He he took on flesh. Why? That through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death. That is the devil. And might free those through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Who is that? Everyone from Adam and Eve. What was the first thing that they did? They hid themselves. They were ashamed and they were afraid. What were they afraid of? That God was going to shout at them? No, they were afraid of death. They were afraid of death. They were afraid of the eternal spiritual death as well. And Paul, and in the book of Hebrews here as well, is saying that Satan will be crushed. And that happens at the cross. Galatians 3.16 Again, Paul, Galatians 3.16, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say unto seeds, Paul says, as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed that is Christ. So there's a seed. Often that's, that's Israel. They, they're the seed from Abraham. 
But sometimes the seed is in a singular sense, and it is the Christ. He that would crush Satan's head. Now let's go forward to Revelation 12. This is now the end of the Bible. Revelation 12, we start to really see this idea come back. The woman, the seed of woman. I just want to read Revelation 12, 1 to 5, and then I'll, I'll comment on it. Satan has been crushed, but he's still active in the world. So you could think of his head being severely injured, but he's still able to operate for a time before he is fully thrown into the lake of fire. And in the great tribulation, in Revelation 12, there is this vision that John sees. John is seeing the tribulation, but God gives him a vision, talking about how all of this came about. How does this come up to this point? And he speaks here of the woman and the dragon. Got to get there myself. And he says, John says, I saw a great sign. It appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and on her head, a crown of 12 stars. Again, the Roman Catholic Church thinks this is Mary. You might be tempted to think this is Eve, but the 12 stars represent the 12 tribes. This is Israel as a nation. And she was with child. She cried out, being in labor and in pain to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns. And on his heads were seven diadems. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven. A third of the angels followed Satan and threw them to the earth. The dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth. So that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. So Satan has been oppressing God's people. He has been oppressing Israel, hoping to cut off this promise of the seed that is coming. And he sees where it's going throughout history. He sees down to Noah's line and down to Abraham's line, down to Jacob. And so he's trying to cut this line off. He's doing battle against God's people. And verse 5, and she gave birth to a son, a male, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God into his throne. So that's Christ. He comes to the earth. Then he's caught up to God in the ascension. He goes back to heaven there. And he is at God's throne. The woman then flees into the wilderness. So we're now caught up to the tribulation time that John has been describing in Revelation. And if you skip down to see who this is. Who is this dragon? Well, look here at verse 17. So the dragon was enraged with the woman. And went off to make war with the rest of her seed. So he can't defeat Israel in the tribulation here. This is believing Israel. He cannot defeat Israel. So he goes now to make war on her seed. Seed. That's what it says in the LSB. I don't know about your translation. But the word here in Greek is clearly seed. With the woman and the rest of her seed. Who's her seed? Well, that's the offspring that Satan is making war against. The seed of woman here is a group. It's those who keep the testimony of the witness of Christ. If you read Revelation in context, these are those who keep the word. They keep the testimony, the witness of the Messiah. It says right there at the end of the verse, doesn't it? They have the witness of Jesus. They keep the commandments of God. These are likely Gentiles that are believing during the tribulation. He's going to make war with them if he can't defeat Israel. He is Satan. And he is still trying to go after God's seed, the godly seed, all the way up until the very end. All the way to the very end. In verse 9, if you go back a bit, who is this dragon? The great dragon was thrown down. Talking about heaven, he was thrown out of heaven. The serpent of old. 
who was called the devil and Satan. We're not just talking about symbology here. Yes, there is symbology. But behind that symbology, the symbol means something. The dragon is the serpent who is Satan. What's going to happen to him? Let's now go all the way to the end. The seed has crushed his head at the cross. His punishment awaits. Christ comes back in Revelation 19. And in 20, he reigns with the resurrected saints for a thousand years. Satan is bound for a time. He's not able to do all that he normally does. He's bound. And then in verse 10, defeated. The devil who deceived them, who deceived mankind, was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone. The lake of fire was created for the devil and his angels. That's the primary purpose for which God created the lake of fire is to punish Satan and the demons. And then all the rest will go in as well that followed Satan, the beast, the false prophet. They will be tormented day and night forever. And then the next paragraph talks about anyone whose name is not found written in the book of life is also thrown into the lake of fire. Those who don't trust in Christ as Savior. This is what happens to the devil. It takes the whole Bible to get to the very end, the whole story, and we're still living this out right now. We haven't yet seen Satan thrown in to the lake of fire, but yet the deadly blow has been dealt at the cross. His head has been stepped on. He is withering around trying to do what damage he can do. But one day he's going to be completely thrown into the lake of fire. And that perfect new heavens and new earth will come about. The last two chapters of Revelation speak of something even better than the garden. Even better than the garden. Because now we know what sin has done. We know how we're sinners. And we know how wicked we were. And we know how corrupt the world became. And God has restored it to something even better than the Garden of Eden. And we have eternal bodies forever and ever. Now that is a Christmas message that you're probably not hearing around the world as we think about a baby and a manger. The baby had to come because he is the seed of woman that will crush the serpent's head. We often sing about the angels singing at Christ's birth. Charles Wesley's song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. It originally had five stanzas. We only sing three. I don't know who decides to drop some of these. But two were dropped off the end. And I found this fourth stanza. Charles Wesley is putting words into the angels as they sing out on the plain as the, as the shepherds are there and they're announcing the birth of Christ. And the fourth stanza begins, Come, desire of nations, come. Fix in us thy heavenly home. Rise the woman's conquering seed, bruise in us the serpent's head. What's the Christmas story about? It's about that snake-crushing Savior and King. Finally coming, dying on the cross for sinners, and then raising, rising again the third day, and eventually throwing Satan in to the eternal punishment of the lake of fire. If you don't know Christ as Savior... You're going into that lake too. But if you know him as Savior, you get the blessings of eternal salvation. The new heavens and new earth. If you think Adam and Eve were scared and they were redeemed as God killed that animal and pointed them forward to the Savior. But if you think that was scary, think about eternal suffering and torment in the lake of fire. Fig leaves won't cover it. Christ will cover it. His sacrifice, that's what atonement means. He's the covering of our sin. He wipes it away when we trust in him. Not in our own works, 
not in adding works to what he did, but trusting fully in the Lord Jesus. That's what we're celebrating here today. Lord, thank you for this text that you gave us the gospel hope, even in a nutshell here. It was in a seed form. And yet we see throughout scripture how it grew into a great oak tree. You told us more about the Messiah as the Bible was written. But here it is. Before Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, you gave us the first gospel. Thank you for Christ our Savior. Help us, Lord, to remember what he's done for us. To celebrate not just the baby in the manger, but the king on the cross and the king who is coming back in victory and in glory someday. Help us to remember all that you've done for us. We pray this in the name of our Savior. Amen.